Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Hello, Candy. Hey, Ashley. How are you today? very excited i am too it's our very first in person well not in person but zoom interview right our very first guest interview on scandal water and we are doing a video so it's a little extra pressure because not only do we have our first interview with this fabulous guest but we also had to look good for it (laughs) yes i got i was so nervous i got up at like 5 45 and i was just waiting (laughs) twiddling my thumbs it's like pressure it is pressure but i am so excited today because i know i've talked about on the podcast before but something that brian and i do for christmas is we don't really buy each other gifts anymore we do experiences. And we've decided to go to Charleston the last two years in a row. We went at the end of December of 2020 and we went again, December of 2021. And both times we took the walking tour with our guest today, Mr. Tommy Dew. And where we actually met Tommy is on our honeymoon back in 2009. We came through Charleston. He asked what I wanted to do. And I said, I would love to go to Charleston and Savannah. And he's, you know, why? I said, I don't know. I've just always wanted to go there. So we drove down the coast we spent about a day and a half in Charleston and the same in Savannah and then we went on for to Disney World but our day and a half there was so impactful to me and we took Mm -hmm. a tour we asked our concierge you know what should we do and he says well you need to go on this tour and here's the guy that you need to have take you so we did that and then when we were just happenstance when we were there in 2020 we went to the it's a it's a marketplace area where they sell the touristy souvenirs and things like that Mm -hmm. And there was, he happened to be there and we, are you serious? Yeah. That's where he meets all of his tours. And when we saw, yeah, when we saw him, we told the people like, you're going to have an amazing time. And the the tour people actually said, are you guys a plant for him or what? (laughs) And we said, no, we genuinely love our, loved the tour with Mm -hmm. him. And it made an impact. So 11 years later, we said, Hey, we want to take another one. And we did. And then when we came into the city this time, we said, we're definitely doing it. And if you only have enough money to do one touristy thing, take his tour. And that's what we did. We, the rest of the time, we just kind of walked around and did our own thing, but that was the one thing that we knew we wanted to do. So when we're on the tour this last time, I told him at the end of it, I said, by the way, my friend and I have started this podcast and we talk about entertainment and he took us to the dock street theater. And I thought, Ooh, now we've got a connection Mm -hmm. to our podcast. And I asked him if he would want to be on it. He actually said, yes. That is amazing. I was so excited when you told me that. I know. So we set up this interview and I think everybody, I think you're going to love him. 
I really do. I know I will. I remember Kirk and I have been there three times, twice. We took the kids one time. It was just the two of us, Mm -hmm. but we took a walking tour on one of our visits. And I remember you recommended Tommy, Mm -hmm. but we couldn't get in for some reason. And we went with a different group. So I, I've heard you speak about him a few different times over the years and you've told me how amazing he is. So I am very much looking forward to this interview and in honor of it. I even wore the earrings that you gave me as, as a Christmas gift from the yes. last visit. You bought yes. them. They're and, beautiful. And, and I have brought my favorite mug, my Charleston, South Carolina. Which I love. That is beautiful. Yeah, it is. It's my favorite one. I actually got it on the 2020 trip. And when I was looking in 2021, I wanted another one in case this one breaks and they didn't have them anymore. Mm, they were so probably I, very I, popular and sold out quickly. I know. I have to be very <laughs> protective of my Charleston mug. Well, I think. We're ready. We're both super excited. Let's go. Let's meet Tommy Dew. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for being here. Ashley has told me so much about you and it's exciting for me to get to meet you in person. Of course, our podcast is focused around the entertainment industry. In fact, our tagline, it's Scandalwater, peculiar stories of the stage screen and everything in between. And we are going to get to that because we've heard you say that, that Charleston is really the birthplace of the arts. And so we are super excited to get to talk about that, but we wanted to get to know you a little bit better first, especially let our listeners get to know you a little bit better Mm -hmm. first. And so the first thing I was going to ask is I saw on your Instagram page that you have been doing these tours for 26 years, which is an amazingly long time. Wondering if you could share with us how that played out. How did you come to lead these tours and and to be at it for such a long time? Well, thank you. And yes, it is a long time. 26 years, I say I've got the longest running show in Charleston. (laughs) Wow. It's kind of like Groundhog's Day. I wake (laughs) up every morning and I give a tour at 11 o'clock. But my really my career in the arts started at a young age. I think it's fair to say that my mother was a stage mom. She dreamed of being on the stage and she's incredibly talented musically. She plays by ear. She Mm. can listen to a song on the radio and then play it on the piano. And then she's a great dancer too. And so she put me on stage as a little boy. I was a runway model for the local (laughs) department store in Richmond when I was two, three years old. And then I was in every play at my school from kindergarten all the way through every year I was in a play. And then I was in a rock band too, starting 10th grade. Oh my gosh. Back in high school. So I had multiple high school bands. And then when I went to college, I went to the College of Charleston and I got a music and theater degree, a fine arts interdisciplinary degree. And I was in a band, multiple bands in college as well. And so out of college, my band was playing pretty hard. We toured the Southeast and I made a living at rock and roll for a while there. Okay. I have to ask what band was this? Well, what instrument, uh, what instrument did you play? That's what well, I wanted to know. I'm a singer. I was the oh. front man. I Ooh. can play guitar, but I don't perform guitar. I mean, I have, I played bass in the band, but I'm really a singer. And uh, my first college band was Tommy Salami and the Cold Cuts. <laughs> And then we got a little more serious and we took on some members and my lead guitar player, he didn't want to be a cold cut. So we then became the archetypes. And that was the band that played hard for a few years there. And we wrote a bunch of music and cut a couple albums. That's so cool. Yeah. And so we were the big Charleston band back in the late 80s, early 90s and met my wife and my band broke up. 
and I needed some daytime work. I needed a paycheck. And so I fell into giving tours. I drove carriages for a year and loved it. And it's incredible to work with the animals. I grew up in the country as well. My sister had a horse. And so Mm -hmm. I rode as a child and very comfortable with animals. But there's nothing like trying to give a tour, which is really a performance event. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In a city on a carriage with a 2000 pound animal pulling you next to motorcycles and UPS trucks. Yeah. It is. It's an incredible experience. And so I did that for a year and that, that really tightened me up. I learned a lot and refined my craft and I decided that this is something that suited me. And I do see giving tours is really the city is my stage. And so Mm -hmm. every day I get to be on stage for a couple hours. So what made you switch from horses to walking? The income level driving carriages was capped. I was going to give four or five days of tours a week. And it was actually, you can definitely make a living as a carriage driver, but that's, it's capped. And also it's a grind. I was giving five, six, seven, eight tours a day some Mm -hmm. days and you can get burned out pretty quickly. Mm, That makes sense. So I fell into it. I started this business in January of 1997 and I've been doing it ever since. And at this point, I'm probably in the neighborhood of 15,000 tours, Ah. I would estimate. Oh my goodness. I want to hop back because I'm just just curious. What was what was your favorite play from school that you were in dozens? So what was well, your? Well, I was the one? artful Dodger and Oliver. Ooh, cool! And uh, that was really fun. I uh-huh. love that music. I was also in some like it hot, which awesome uh, had to be in drag. <laughs> which one were you? Were you Tony? Were you Tony Curtis? Or I was Tony Lemon? Curtis. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, that's cool. But, and, but that was actually one of my, so Tommy Salami and the cold cuts and then the archetypes, <laughs> we were a performance rock band. And, yeah. and so I would sing in drag. And so I think that was the inspiration. Some like it hot. <laughs> yeah, we, we were, we were sort of a punk rock. Do you have any copies of your music still? Well, you can certainly, you could go on the Apple music. You can download it. We'll put a link to that. Love it. Well, you mentioned that during that first year, and of course, I'm sure thereafter that you really worked on refining your craft. And so I wanted to follow up on that. What you are so incredibly knowledgeable. And you also, as you said, there are so many performance elements that come out during when you're delivering your tour. So could you share with us some of your strategies for gaining all that knowledge and for refining how you performed you know, your tour. Yes. I think there's, it's two main components. You have to have a knowledge base. When I started giving tours, the city required testing and they offered the test four times a year, every quarter. And it's extremely challenging. There are a thousand buildings in the city of Charleston built before 1860. Mm -hmm. And you could potentially be asked a question on any of those buildings, but also things like indigenous people and plants just things that are part of this community on all levels. And it's a lot of information and it's a lot of rote memorization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I took the test the first time, 26 people took it and only 11 passed it. So it's got a really high failure rate. I would say it was more challenging than any test I took in college in terms of the amount of information you had to know. But that's only half the battle. You're really playing to the audience and you quickly learn that When you're on a carriage, there is, or just a walking tour even, you have all sorts of folks that are in your audience and all levels of knowledge and interest. You have to create a tour that captures everyone. It's a fine art to taking your information and putting it forth in a way that's digestible 
for a really varied audience. You mm -hmm. want to satisfy everybody. You're there to have fun. Ultimately, people want to enjoy themselves and they don't want to learn something as well. So it's edutainment. And that's a catchphrase in our industry, edutainment. <laughs> I like that. The key there is having an editor in your head. Yeah. And I think that mm -hmm. was one of my strengths uh, as a guy that was on stage pretty much all of his life. You can read an audience and you can, read you can, in the tell, room. You can read the room and mm -hmm. you're, you can look at your crowd and you can tell who's getting it, who's not. Mm -hmm. And you just try to always keep everybody engaged. And I said, the most challenging part of my job is editing because I've got a hundred hours worth of information in my head, but I got to get that down into two hours. So every tour is going to be different. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing that you learn with experience. A lot of tour guides, they basically push play and they give you this spiel that is almost pre-recorded mm -hmm. and there's very, they don't like questions because they don't want to be interrupted. Or if they not, may not or, know the answer and it would be embarrassing, right? Well, some people are intimidated by that. I yeah. love not knowing the answer because it gives me something to think about and research. And so right. and if you ask a question that I don't have the answer to, I will go home and look it up. And that's, and that's how you get better. Yeah. You're always trying to refine, mm -hmm. but it's easy to try to tell everybody everything you know, and that's not what you want to do. You really got to be selective and make choices along the way. And, and I think the key to me being able to do this so long and not be burned out at this point is to keep it organic. Every mm -hmm. tour is different mm -hmm. and I let it flow. I've long said that I'm addicted to improvisation. Half the information on every tour will be the same, yeah. but the other half will not be the same. Right. There's certain core elements to the tour that you have to say every time for people to have a foundation, but then mm -hmm. you can pepper that with things that are of interest to the crowd. The questions are going to drive the tour and what mm -hmm. the people seem interested in, and you can take it that direction. And then if you go, that's when they really, you can tell that they really enjoy it is that they ask a question that's pretty specific. And then you can go mining down on that information mm -hmm. and give them a far better answer than they had ever hoped for. Mm -hmm. that's, that's one of the joys. A little editorial comment as an educator, we are always talking to our students about audience and purpose. And I love how that's exactly what you're doing. You're constantly thinking about, you know, what's my purpose and how do I meet the needs of my audience? That mm -hmm. is amazing. This is a little more specific and moving into a little bit more about Charleston specifically. I was fascinated when I was listening to the podcast you did for our American stories. You mentioned that Charleston is both known as a Sodom and Gomorrah of the South, but also the most mannered city in America. And I'm thinking what a contrast that is. Could you share with us how it could be both of those things? Well, yeah. And it, it, it doesn't sound to seem like it would work, but in, it requires a touch of context. So historically the North was the Bible belt. If you step back and you, know, you use a broad brush, the Northeast was dominated by religious sects, much more so than the Southeast. So a group like the Puritans, they settled New England and they're incredibly rigid. It's their way or the highway. They had witch trials. They killed people up there. Hmm. And so they did not like frivolity. The Puritans said entertainment is the portal to the soul through which the devil can enter and wreak havoc. Idle hands of the devil's workshop, the devil's mischief. They called Charleston Sodom and Gomorrah. That is an old New England nickname for Charleston. Because yeah. Charleston and really the South was founded by people that were more supportive of the aristocracy. So the guys that 
saw themselves as royals or wannabe royals. They were aspirational and they were more inclined to come south and they acquired great wealth and they would go to Europe on grand tours. They would be educated in Europe and they would see what the royals were doing and they would develop a taste for it. And then they would come back and they would have the resources to import the finest of everything. In the 1700s, there are all these social firsts in Charleston. For instance, the first theater in America, the Dock Street Theater. It's the first site where a playhouse was built in all of America. We had the first racetrack, the first golf club, city lotteries, organized gambling. The oldest profession was legal through World War II. And the only reason they outlawed it is the boys came back from World War II. Our Navy base matriculated a half million GIs at the end of the war, and they were covered up in social diseases and they had to write laws for the first time. Mm -hmm. But historically, that was just seen as a look the other way thing, Mm -hmm. a gentleman's pastime. And so the tone is not well understood that the North was the Bible Belt and the South was incredibly permissive. But what confuses people is now we're the Bible Belt, one could say, and the North is Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that's one of the fascinating little twists for people because they don't tend to give us credit for what we used to be, this incredibly permissive place where the arts flourished really from the beginning. So then how did it come to be voted the most mannered city? The changes really started in the early 1800s. The the North Not to say we were not mannered. We were always mannered because wealthy people, very sophisticated. Etiquette was extremely important. But I think what happens in the 1800s is the North industrializes and explodes with people from all over the world. The North embraces change. And the South was generally unstimulated starting in the early 1800s by outsiders. So Southern families tend to have deep roots. And they were undisturbed by the outside world. And so they hold tradition near and dear to their hearts. So manners are important historically. And, you know, it's it's an ethic. It's a spiritual ethic, really. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I do believe that. And so people come at it with that lens and a service lens and be kind of strangers. I think it's a mandate. Mm -hmm. So we've been voted the most mannered city in America for over 25 consecutive years by the travel industry. That's independent polling. Guests report to their travel agents that they were treated incredibly well, Mm -hmm. just random acts of kindness. And it's a baked in sentiment here. And it goes back in part to the I think the old lens of pretense and being fancy, but then it's also tradition dies hard here and manners do matter. You know, I mentioned my mom earlier, her great saying, when I walked out the door, pull your manners out of your pockets, pull your manners (laughs) out of your pockets. That's what my mother's saying. And when I left Mm -hmm. the house, I like that. that. I will say I've been to Charleston, I think three times now, and I can see that. I mean, you just feel so welcome there. Yeah. Everybody is so nice and smiling. It's just kind of like this laid back feel. So I can see where it would be voted the most mannered city. Mm-hmm. Having led your tours for such a long time, what are some of the tourist questions, noticings, or behaviors that you've seen over and over again? And on the other side, what are some unusual or standout moments that come to mind? So what do your tourists always ask you? Well, you know, there, there are lots of common questions and uh-huh. there's also a lot of myths But I think generally the joy for me is the grand reveal. It's like opening the curtain and the mystery is revealed. People are always blown away by what they find here. Just to, you know, just to rattle off some factoids, we were the fourth largest city in the United States Mm -hmm. in 1790, little old Charleston, South Carolina, Mm -hmm. Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. New York, Boston, 
Charleston. Wow, and these amazing. are the wealthiest Americans and the most educated Americans. And people just don't understand that. Prior to 1776, nine of the 10 wealthiest families in America were living in South Carolina all at once. And they all lived in downtown Charleston. The French called Charleston the Paris of the New World. And the British called us the crown jewel of America. Mm -hmm. But New England colonies were inclined to call us Sodom and Gomorrah because it was just right. so <laughs> over the top. My follow-up question is, why did it swap? Sodom well, and Gomorrah? The, I think because the North, which had been uptight and really was the Bible Belt, individual yeah. religious sects running the show at various locales, Puritans, Quakers, Shakers, Pilgrims. One group would be so dominant in a Northern location, they could make their morality the law of the land. Okay. And there wasn't room for outside opinion. Whereas in the South, we were actually founded on freedom of religion. Right. This was the most diverse early American city. You could say New Amsterdam, New York, because it was Dutch. But in the colonial period, you know, we have all these Western faiths showing up in Charleston because they're guaranteed to be able to worship as they want. Mm. And I would argue that freedom of religion created an umbrella of tolerance. If you're not telling people how they have to worship, you'll be much more inclined to leave them alone socially. So religious tolerance actually fueled social tolerance. Mm. And so we're just wide open comparatively. And it is a relative thing. Going to the theater now is no big deal, but 250 years ago, it was a big deal. That would get you in trouble in New England. Mm. In the early 1800s, the North is just utterly overwhelmed by immigration because she's building factories and creating jobs. And it is a magnet for people from Europe. Okay. So all of a sudden, the North has a new outlook and it becomes multicultural, more liberal, more progressive. And the South was increasingly homogeneous, conservative and moralistic. So I think the crossing of paths is easily explained by immigration patterns. Well, and I was going to ask if it had something to do with what you say now. I wonder if some of those Puritan people, they got old and they got cold. And so they came down to Charleston <laughs> and brought their, you know, conservative values well, down. Well, that's a 50-year phenomenon. So, you know, <laughs> having taken my tour, you know, I've always argued that Interstate 95 is actually what woke us up from the war uh -huh. between the states. Uh -huh. The interstate was finished in South Carolina in 1974. That's when all the segments of I-95 were completed. And that's when our coastal economy becomes a service economy. Tourism mm -hmm. takes over. So I always say Myrtle Beach, Charleston, and Hilton Head. Mm -hmm. Beaches, golf, and repotted Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> and they do get cold as they get old. They want warmer weather and they want lower taxes. Uh -huh. I think it's also fair to say that you get nostalgic as you age. You want the world you grew up in. And mm -hmm. the world is changing really fast right now. We've been an awesome fit for aging Northerners because we're a little bit behind everybody else. And mm -hmm. sort of reminds them of the world they, they grew, grew up, up in. in and they long for. Mm. What are what are some of the your favorite spots on the tour? Well, there are no shortage of favorite spots. So that's one of the joys of the tour is every day is different and you take uh -huh. a different street and you stand at one spot with the lighting in a different place and mm -hmm. the mood changes. And, you know, you can walk the streets of Charleston on a daily basis for years and notice something that you've never seen before. Mm. Yeah, we have so much, just so, so much, but I like the nooks and crannies you know they're, they're places where you can go and just get in an alcove or if you have permission walk down somebody's driveway and and just kind of look at the city from an angle that you wouldn't normally see when you're on the sidewalk mm -hmm. so there's a lot of that and it's a never-ending it's just a, it's overwhelming visually it is overwhelming yeah and that's a fun part of the tours because people 
they'll say that we're the most European of all the American cities. When tourists come to Charleston, they say, you remind me more of Europe than any city I've ever been in in this country. Mm -hmm. And you can just tell they're mesmerized. They're like, you are so fortunate to live here. This is the most beautiful city I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Count your blessings. I do. I had a, I was telling that to Brian. I said, do you think people just wake up and understand how fortunate they are to live here? It's just, that's, that's the way I felt there. Uh, when you told us about that gate in the cemetery from the, uh, I'll get the date wrong. So you can correct me. The 16th, the 16th. From century, the Amer- it's the pre-revolutionary gate. Pre-revolutionary gate. And I had to touch it. I, I am touching something from the pre-revolutionary. This Candy and I both love history, but I just mm-hmm. walk around there just gobsmacked by how much history and it just feels like it's coming up from it's permeating everywhere and you feel the, the scope of the history. It, and yeah, People do get a feeling in Charleston. Yeah. They get a feeling that they don't get anywhere else in this country. Yeah. And it's also about the people. It's not just the buildings. I think one of the joys of giving tours, I live downtown. I've lived in on the peninsula of Charleston since 1985. And I go to church downtown. My kids went to school downtown and I work downtown. And so pretty much everything about my existence is on it's this downtown. little peninsula. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll leave downtown from time to time, but I don't have to. And right. most days I don't. And so I have a very compact existence and you see people that you know every single day and I run into people on the streets of Charleston that are friends of mine and one little subtlety when you're on tour tourists love it when a local stops and engages you as a tour guide it validates you as a guide it makes you look like a local right you're part of the community and you can tell they're paying very close attention to the interaction because tourists come to soak it up and savor and try to get a sense. They too want that peek behind the, the curtain because tourist towns tend to have a facade. They, they become sort of caricatures and yeah. they want to look behind the curtain. What are real people doing in this city? I think that's probably one of the keys to Charleston. It describes itself as a living city with living institutions. Mm-hmm. You're to be good stewards of old things. You're supposed to take care of your old stuff, but you don't mm-hmm. let it limit your existence. So this is not Williamsburg, for instance. Williamsburg was created by the Rockefellers, and it is a facade with a bunch of reconstructed things. Charleston's <laughs> real, and it just so happens that your buildings are old. So yeah. people are fascinated by that, and there's so many families here that have been here since the 1600s. That's just... Oh, my goodness. It's unfathomable to me. You said Williamsburg, and I had to laugh because Williamsburg is one of Candy's absolute favorite places. And we uh, we're doing an episode before yours is going to be about Williamsburg. So that's why I was laughing about. And that. not to knock Williamsburg, that's yeah, where yeah. my people are. You know, I'm a Virginian. My yeah. family, my Thomas Dew, is buried in the chapel at William and Mary in downtown Williamsburg. Wow. So, so you have connections to all the old cities. There, and that's where my mm-hmm. family farm is, and between Richmond and Williamsburg. That's amazing. So those are my but, people. But but that is a construct versus something that's Mm -hmm. just been here forever. Right. Which I think is a a wonderful distinction because even in our our episode, we talk about the fact that it's a living interactive museum Mm -hmm. versus your point that this is a city where we are still able to walk around among all of these old structures that have just been here forever. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just a very different thing. And one other little tidbit on that front is there's a patina to Charleston and people in Charleston have the way the houses are situated. They're on the sidewalk and the gardens tend to be to the back. 
So the majority of houses have private spaces in their backs that unless you're invited in, you will never see. Mm-hmm. So there's so much going on behind the gate, behind mm-hmm. the garden wall that the tourists that are going up and down the streets never see. I had a guy from Europe on my tour one time and he said, you are the most European of the American cities. And he said, what I mean by that is in Europe, we put our possessions in our backyards. In America, you put yours in your front yards. Because they want everybody to see it. Yeah, and mm. so Americans tend to be gauche, new money, flashy, right, and Europeans right. are quiet money, old and right. reserved. And Charlestonians have that flavor to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is what is the thing you love the most about your job, and what's the most challenging? Is the walking the most challenging? I mean, not for you, but maybe for the the people who take the tour. People come with physical limitations, mm-hmm. especially in the summer. The heat is a problem, mm-hmm. and I have people fall out mm-hmm. occasionally, a couple mm-hmm. times a year. Someone will get a little overwhelmed by the heat and humidity, drink some water and eat a piece of candy. And they tend to perk right back up and feel better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Almost every time. But people get overwhelmed. They're not used to it, especially if they live at elevation. And then you have people with mobility issues, mm-hmm. which you just have to be accommodating. You know, I get people with wheelchairs and oh, I just good. say, fine, just I'll push it. No big deal. You'll be front and center all the time. I've had the realization recently, and I think it sounds a little cheesy, but I've never had a bad day at work. Mm-hmm. Thousands and thousands and thousands of tours. I've never had a bad day at work. There are tours that are weird. <laughs> Why there are they are, weird? There are tours <laughs> that can be cranky oh, and just uh... come in. You know, they're unhappy people. They're, you can just tell that there, there's not going to be a lot of satisfaction mm-hmm. coming from, from Do you that ever get side them- of the room. People that argue with you? Not too much, but sometimes. Mm. But, you know, most people are there to learn. Generally, Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the why I'm fortunate is, you know, you don't take a walking tour unless you want to take a walking tour. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, when I drove carriages, that was a different animal. You get all sorts of folks on the carriage, old people and babies and people that don't Mm -hmm. want to be there, but the rest of the family wants to be there. Gotcha. And you're not going to make somebody take a two hour, one mile walking tour unless they really want to be there. So that's that in and of itself is the filter. And for sure, you get more sophisticated people on walking tours, but you do get cranky people. And I just take that as a challenge. How can I make this guy happy <laughs> by the end of the tour? What do I have to do to win this guy over? And that's yeah. just part of the fun. And just have to, again, take it as it comes and don't show up at the tour with a set agenda. It just yeah. let it flow. What do you do when it rains? Umbrellas? Well, that's an art form too. You know, if it's pouring, we will cancel because it's not fun to get soaking wet. But if it's a light rain, most people want to go because they've spent a lot of money to get here and they're sure. ready and they're right. excited. And right. so usually an umbrella will get it done. And it often just rains intermittently here. You know, it'll, it's cloud by cloud. And so it'll rain for a little while and stop. And I've got a route that allows me to get tucked away. I'll get up mm-hmm. under porticos, mm-hmm. under buildings, go into buildings, and you can usually let it pass. And I tell people, you know, we're going to walk from the market to the battery today. And if it starts to rain hard, I might make an executive decision and take a route that keeps you drier and you will not know the difference. Oh, nice. <laughs> that's the beauty of the job too, is you can head off in any direction. Yeah. And it's just mm-hmm. fascinating. It doesn't matter where you walk. There's something yeah. to talk about. We are one of the rainiest places in the United States. We get 50 to 55 inches of annual rainfall. Despite that, I only lose, I would say one to two tours a year to rain. Can we just hear one really 
quick example of what you would call weird. You really intrigued me with that one. Well, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me on tour is I had this family from Ohio and they were large people and it was really, really hot. And it was seven women and they were all related. It's aunts and cousins and it's a girl's trip. And it was hotter than Hades. It was the middle of the summer. Mm. And we were standing on Meeting Street, which is a pretty big thoroughfare. And my back was to the street and I had them leaning on a wall and, you know, they're fanning themselves. They're dying. They were all in tank tops and, and shorts and they would just were overwhelmed by the heat and humidity. As I'm giving the tour, they're all looking at me with my back to the street, a pigeon flew into a bus. They went head to head and the bus was hit the pigeon within three feet of my head. Oh no. And it exploded. And it sounded like a shotgun went off when the pigeon exploded and the guts went everywhere. And these huge women from Ohio wearing tank tops and they're glistening. They, it looked like they had little pencil erasers on their arms from the pigeon guts. Little dots of pigeon uh, were all over these women. No. <laughs> but the show must go on. Oh, and my goodness. So they got tissues out and they're hee-haw laughing. Everybody is just <laughs> belly laughing, bending over. Can't uncontrollable laughter for about five minutes, cleaning themselves up. They happened to have some hand sanitizer and they felt good. I had it in my hair. It was all over my back and we kept going. And in every 10 minutes or so, one of them would just start to giggle and then the, the laughter would erupt again. That is, that is very weird, but very funny. Oh, that's mortifying. I did not see that coming. On a very different note, you've actually already spoken to this a little bit, but maybe there might be something you'd want to expand upon. You had talked about the fact, or you mentioned that Charleston is considered to be the birthplace of the arts. Is there anything else you'd want to add about that? The birthplace of the arts might be a little bit presumptuous, but there were so many social firsts in Charleston well before you found them in the other colonies. Mm. And I do believe it starts with the freedom of religion law instilling tolerance. But then this aspirational culture, these are landed families playing at being English, French, and German royals. That is the aspiration, Northwestern European royalty. And so they want to have lives similar to those that they left behind in Europe. And they had the resources to pull it off. And if you're of leisure, if you're a landed aristocrat and you have a lot of free time, you're going to find ways to fill it. And it's the exact opposite in New England. I think the, the best example of the differences in tone comes from George Washington. So George Washington spent a week in Charleston in 1791. And he is one of the wealthiest men in North America. And he's from Virginia, which is a very social place. And he's an aristocrat. And when he comes to Charleston, he wrote that he had never been entertained more lavishly. The most elegant parties he had ever attended were in Charleston. And that the loveliest ladies he'd ever laid his eyes upon were. <laughs> in Charleston. And coming from him, that's a big deal because he, he was worldly. But at the same time, he, he talks about New England. He had spent 1776 fighting through the Northeast. That's the first year of the campaign. And he wrote about the coldness and the coarseness of the people. No frivolity, mm -hmm. no social grace. Mm -hmm. humorless people. And so I think it's important, it's, it's noteworthy that the father of our country is making incredibly pointed mm -hmm. observations about the differences in tone between the mm -hmm. North and the South. Mm -hmm. These are deep-seated differences. 
go back centuries and the South and the North just evolved away from each other. It's they start differently. And for 200 years, they evolve apart. And, you know, obviously it all comes to a head in the 1860s, deep seated rivalries, tensions and visions for what the nation's going to be. The lifestyle in Charleston was seductive. These were wealthy people who had extravagant lifestyles and they were content. They did not want to change. They, you know, there's an old saying, change is bad when you're number one. Yeah. So they wanted to <laughs> yeah. keep what they had. Yeah. And, yeah. And they were not good negotiators. They were used to getting their way. And there was a new vision for America coming out of the North, really in the 1800s. And these people were not interested. They would say, do what you want, but leave us alone. If you won't grant us a peaceable divorce, we'll fight you. And that's ultimately what happens. And so one of the reasons we don't get credit for being so permissive and so artistic is that the whole system came crashing down in 1865. The men were dead and the money was gone. Yeah. And for a hundred years, not much happened and we're frozen in time. And the North continued to change and change rapidly in the 1800s. And so now she's perceived as the center of art and culture when historically that was absolutely not the case. It was the South. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we don't get credit for that. So in your earlier question, you you asked me about what people come in and ask about. And that's one of those preconceived notions they are always blown away by the things they find in Charleston. They have no clue what this place used to be about because it's just not well described on the national stage. It's one of the joys for me is being able to open the curtain and let them look. And and they have revelations here. And it makes them question sometimes. I think people realize, you know, there's a lot of information in the world, but you only get fed what people want you to eat. (laughs) And so you got to go looking for information to get a rounded account, a full view of what really happened. My question for you is going to be about the Dock Street Theater, because the last tour we took was touring that and I I loved it. So it has the nickname of America's first theater. Can you fill us in on the history of it and its significance and how much of the original structure is still standing? Just basically tell us a little bit about that. So the Dock Street Theater in downtown Charleston is the oldest site of theatrical production in America. It's the first place in the American colonies where a playhouse was built. And it was not built until 1736, which is a really late date. That's well over a hundred years after Jamestown and Plymouth Rock. But there again, it speaks to the religious nature of the early colonies. Actors were gypsies. They led nomadic lives. So you would have performances in New England potentially, but it's an acting troupe rolling into the little town. They set up on the green, they improv on the back of the wagon, the crowd gathers, they get in a performance or two, they pass the hat, And then here comes the magistrate and he's going to arrest them for having led the flock astray. And so (laughs) actors bounced from town to town. They never had permanent facilities. And the very first permanent facility for theater in America was not until 1736 in downtown Charleston. And that building unfortunately burned and the building that stands now, the bulk of that dates to 1809. And it was severely damaged by the war and then damaged by the earthquake in 1886. And it sat empty for years. And then it got restored in the 1930s and then was restored again about 10 years ago. So the theater that's there now doesn't look like 
the original theater, but it is the very first place where a playhouse was built in all of America. Mm-hmm. That's always a shocker for people. They, mm-hmm. They're really surprised. And, you know, I know that y'all are in the arts. You know, Romans wouldn't give actors citizenship. They were seen as soulless creatures, professional <laughs> liars. They couldn't be trusted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we hold actors and the acting trade in high esteem now. Many of us do. But historically, they were frowned upon. One of the, the lenses there is that entertainment is the portal to the soul to which the devil can enter and wreak havoc. And so actors were seen as pliers of dark arts. They extended the reach of Satan. And in a place like the Northeast, where you have these religious sects, that fervor means you're not going to have full-time theaters. But down here, because they're pursuing a royal bent mm-hmm. and they're aspirational, the theater is welcome. Okay. In fact, the Dock Street Theater, the King of England's coat of arms, King George's crest mm-hmm. sits above the stage front and center. Permanently. Yeah. I have a photo of that. I'll put it, I'll put, I'll make a note to put that up there because it is, um, it's the crest right above the stage. And I would say it's, it's essentially an homage to the influence of the court of England on our culture. If it's cool in London, it's going to be cool in Charleston the next year. I think I remember reading that when they first put their first production in 1736, when they redid it, they put on the same production. And I can't remember the title of the show though. The first performance ever held there was a play called the recruiting agent yes the recruiting agent by a guy named Fauquier, f-a-q-u-i-e-r I believe. the recruiting agent and didn't they redo that play though yeah that has since been performed and then yeah porgy and bess has been on that stage you know porgy and bess is probably the most famous work to come out of charleston it was based on a book written by a guy named DeBose Hayward. And then the Gershon brothers got a hold of it and they set it to music and they called it Porgy and Bess. Mm -hmm. And that came out in the 1930s. And it was the first American cultural offering to be embraced by European elites. And so prior to the 1930s, Europeans had great disdain for American culture. We were seen as peasants. We were colonists. We're the people that couldn't hack it in the old world. Mm. And there was there was some bias there. So there was nothing that we could generate as a culture that was going to be worthy of the attention of elites in Europe. And Porgy and Bess sort of changed the way they look at us. Jazz had hit a little bit earlier, but jazz was viewed as street music and club music, whereas Porgy and Bess is going into opera houses and the great opera houses of Europe embrace it and they cannot get enough of it. It is also interesting because it has a black cast. Mm-hmm. And that was highly controversial. And there were a lot of cities that would not allow it to be performed for that reason. Mm-hmm. And I think but, I should know this date, but it was not performed in Charleston, I don't think, until like 1970. It took that long. Really? Oh, you're kidding. What yeah. is that that you told us on the tour? The thing about the catfish? That's my joke, you know. Okay. So DeBose Hayward is a local guy, and he's actually a broke aristocrat. So his great-grandfather was Thomas Hayward, who signed the Declaration of Independence. And a founding father and George Washington stayed in the Hayward house in downtown Charleston for a week during his visit. Okay. So the Haywards are aristocrats and they've been in this, in the city for centuries, but just like everybody else, they're humbled dramatically by the war. And so in the early 20th century, DuBose Hayward is a starving artist. He's living in the ghetto Mm -hmm. and he's looking for cheap rent and he lives next to a tenement and a grocer. It's called Cabbage Row. It was a grocer on the bottom, a vegetable market with rooms upstairs and in the back, but a hundred people lived in Cabbage Row in the 1920s. Mm. And he lived right beside it. And these are 
former slaves, children, grandchildren, overcrowded, destitute. And he's back and forth all the time. And he writes this book called Porgy based on that. And then it evolves into Porgy and Bess. Mm-hmm. Well, when the Gershon brothers get a hold of it, they move it to the waterfront and they call it Catfish Row. Okay. Catfish Row is fictitious. It was really Cabbage Row. It's just mm-hmm. more romantic for the stage to set it along the wharves. But the funny thing about me for me is the great song is summertime and the living is easy. Catfish are jumping. Summers ain't easy here. <laughs> <laughs> and catfish don't jump. Yeah. <laughs> They're bottom feeders. That's right. That's right. So the joke is that was clearly written by a couple of Yankees for a northern <laughs> audience. Yeah. And that's that's what it was. I knew there was somebody that was northern. That northern was- people <laughs> love the summers and hate the winters. And yeah. southern people tend to hate the summers and love the winters. That's why I always visit Charleston in December, because I am from Kentucky and I know how miserable yeah. Kentucky is in the summer. Yeah. Smart people come fall, winter and spring. Yeah. What you find in the summers here is that it's families with children because that's the oh. school break. Right. Oh, yeah. Or people right. who just don't know. They just don't know. It's not really that big a deal because everybody's got air conditioning now. True. But in the 1920s, yeah. when this was being formulated, Porgy and Bess, 1930s, nobody has air conditioning. It doesn't right. exist. Mm, right. The very first place that most people ever experienced air conditioning in the South was in a movie theater. Mm. They conditioned oh. movie theaters so people would go in the summertime. And that's old Southern people will tell you that's <sighs> the very first time they ever got to sample air conditioning. I did not know that. was so theater. smart. That is. Yeah. Marketing. And, <laughs> yeah. In 1950, less than 5% of homes in South Carolina had air conditioning. Oh 1950, less than 5%. Summers were not to be celebrated here. They mm-hmm. were dreaded. And if you could pull it off, you would vacate. You left Charleston for the summer. So would that be June, July, August? Yeah. And you might throw in September. April, May, <laughs> September, October. <laughs> Half the year, basically half the year. <laughs> yeah, you know the, the the spring and the fall here are really just extensions of the summer. There's about a six month <laughs> period where you can be 90 degrees and 90 percent humidity. You know that's uh, what I like to say. We run at 90 90. That is like it's, Kentucky. It's sauna esque. <laughs> One more thing about the theater. I read about you know Candy and I both are actors occasionally. Candy more often than myself, but I read in the Dock Street Theater now. I thought it was a completely professional theater. But they do have professional actors, but they do let community people try out as well and kind of fill out some of the other roles. And I thought that was marvelous. Mm -hmm. Like you have the meeting of the professional and the community so everybody can be involved in it. Do you know anything about that? Well, it is an equity stage. And so Uh that means that union folks in the Actors Guild from big cities, they try out for the major performances. So Charleston Stage, that is the home theater company for the Dock Street Theater and typically have nine productions a year. And in and amongst that, they have all sorts of other things. And they'll strike that stage in the middle of a run to do a business conference or to have a musical performance. They use that stage for anything and everything. You can actually Mm. rent the Dock Street Theater. I've been to parties there. (gasps) Wow. That's very cool. Okay, I'm writing that down just for me personally. (laughs) (laughs) So kind of following that out, other notable people or notable works that might have come out of Charleston. Ashley mentioned that something was said on the last tour you led about there being a ret Margaret Mitchell connection. Can you share that? Sure. So Margaret Mitchell was from Atlanta, Georgia. 
and she wrote Gone with the Wind, her novel, and it becomes, you know, one of the most popular movies of all time. She had a Charleston connection and she actually had family here and spent time here. And it's obviously a fictitious story, but there are elements to that story that are based in truth, like so many great stories. And Rhett Butler is a fictitious character, but the name Rhett goes back to the very beginning. Colonel William Rhett was a first generation Charlestonian. He was born in London in 1666 and immigrates to Charleston as a young man. And he was an ambitious young man. He held various posts and the early city government and he took over the militia and he defended the city repeatedly and he died a hero and his family is still in Charleston. He's buried in the graveyard at St. Philip's church where I go to church and his grandson, Dr. Rhett is our associate rector. And so Dr. Rhett's family has been there since the 1600s and he's actually in the leadership of the church and he's I believe the 12th generation grandson of Colonel Rhett. The other part to that is we were the number one gun running city for the Confederacy. So more foreign supplies came through Charleston Harbor than any other. Our captains were outstanding at essentially taking Southern cotton to the Caribbean and to Europe and selling it and then buying supplies Mm -hmm. and sneaking them back in. And the two greatest gun runners for the Confederacy were George Trenum and George Williams, both from Charleston. And mm. so Trenum and Williams were used by Margaret Mitchell to create the Rhett Butler persona, mm. but she gets the name Rhett from Colonel Rhett, who was legend. So therefore, Rhett Butler's fictitious, but he has pieces and parts of real characters. He's a compilation. That's fascinating. Yeah. And Candy also has on here that is Darius Rucker, does he live there now? And also Bill Murray? Do they both live they there now? They both live here. So Darius was born and raised in Charleston and he okay. went to the University of South Carolina and, you know, Hootie and the Blowfish got its start at USC up in Columbia and they hit the big time. Mm-hmm, they did. <laughs> Darius is an old friend of mine. What do you think about his transition to country music? Do you like it better? I do. I think he's Mm -hmm. done an incredible job. You know, he was up up against a lot. There were not a lot of black country artists. And he also was coming out of the Hootie and the Blowfish gig, which was a big deal. Yeah. People don't know this, but their album, Cracked Rear View, along with Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Little Pill, Pill. are the two leading debut rock albums of all time. Wow. They both sold close to 20 million albums. And they're the, they're within about a thousand album sales of each other at any given time wow. for the number one debut rock album yeah. of all time. Wow. And so they had follow-up albums, but nothing ever matched that success. And so mm-hmm. Hootie and the Blowfish sort of faded. And then he built this country career and he knew that it was a challenge breaking in as a black pop rock artist and he's a huge country music fan and has been all of his life and one interesting thing about Darius is he's got a gift for lyrics and so he knows the lyrics to all these songs that you've heard on the radio it's mm-hmm. crazy what mm-hmm. what he can recall it's mm-hmm. just a, it's a gift it's a talent and he knows a lot about country music and it's not fake it's real and so his manager at the time, Doc McGee, said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to all the country radio stations and we're going to do morning drive time interviews. And we're going to say, ask questions to Darius, see if you can stump Darius Rucker. He basically, he had to answer <laughs> trivia questions about country music. Gotcha. And he did that for about six months. It might've even been longer, but he went to dozens and dozens of country radio stations. And he sat there primetime drive time in the mornings on the big country markets and answered everybody's questions. 
he was it was proving himself right it was was proving himself you couldn't stump him yeah and that endeared himself to the disc jockeys and the program managers for country radio gotcha and Mm -hmm. and then the album came out and it had hit after hit on it it was really really good and i can't speak for darius i would think that when you go out on your own and you become a solo artist you get a lot more control you get total creative control Right. And I think that if you're an artist, that's something that you long for. And I think that that first album, you really saw it. He shone brightly. I think so, those are some special songs. Bill Murray lives here. And so Bill is, you see him on the streets from time to time. And Bill is an uber celebrity. Mm-hmm. It's funny to watch people. I, I call him the everyman. You know, <laughs> guys my age, I'm 55. And guys my age grew up watching Bill Murray movies. Oh, and- I've written, I love Bill Murray. I've written a poem to him. I've written a play about <laughs> him. The, one of my bucket lists would be to bump into him in Charleston and be like, I love you, man. <laughs> well, you're not the only one. And it's pretty overwhelming. I'll send when- you my Bill Murray poem. And then if you ever <laughs> run into him, to be like, hey, I know a girl. She really Fat middle-aged bankers get weak in the knees in his presence. <laughs> <laughs> and they just don't know what to do. They don't no. because they, they're just so overwhelmed because they love him so much. They people just love him so much. And you know, he's been in the Charleston area for a long time. He he lives downtown and you'll see mm-hmm. him. And he's a really sweet guy. You know, he he's achieved a level of celebrity that few people have. Okay, what's your favorite Bill Murray movie? Oh I would oh. say my Favorite Bill Murray movie is, meat, no, no. is Meatballs. Meatballs. Oh, I don't even think I've seen that one. Well, I just remember watching that in the movie theater as a child and it resonated with me. Mm-hmm. He was a camp counselor and he was the coach for the uncool kids and they had to go against the cool kids. And, mm-hmm. and so it was an underdog story. And I'll just never forget the line from the movie. Bill Murray gets his team to just say, it just doesn't matter. Mm. It just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so I've always rooted for the underdog. And so that's, yeah. that movie really resonated with me. I like it. So has Charleston been used as a setting for any famous movies or books? Yes, we are, I think, increasingly seeing that. Miniseries North and South was filmed in Charleston. Oh, and okay. When I first became a tour guide, you would get questions about North and South, but that's a dated piece now, so people don't think about that anymore. The Patrick Swayze one? Yes. Yeah, okay. Movie The Patriot was filmed exclusively in South Carolina, and they did a bunch of filming in downtown Charleston. My friend Marsha Ray, she was an extra in The the Patriot. She was telling me about that at dinner while we were there. Cool. Forrest Gump was filmed in the Charleston area between Charleston and Savannah. see candy was going to ask about that and i thought it was savannah so i was like no i don't i don't think it was filmed in charleston what part was filmed in charleston well there were all sorts of scenes but more of the nature scenes like the shrimp boat scenes that was happening a lot of that was happening between savannah and charleston okay okay around beaufort and that reminds me the big chill was filmed in beaufort which is just south of us and the notebook was filmed in downtown charleston Ooh. I love, I'm going to have to go back okay. and rewatch that. And then most recently, the Netflix series Outer Banks. Mm. So that's Heard filmed in Charleston now. Okay. Okay. And that's not something I've watched, but it's really popular. Yeah, I haven't that's seen it either. So but teenagers. Our friend Bree loves that show. I'm pretty sure. Okay. 
That's one of the most popular franchises on Netflix. Netflix. Oh, and then let's not forget Southern Charm, the show on Bravo Network. Southern oh, Charm. Why. I don't have. Is it a reality show? It's a so-called reality TV show. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's probably why Candy and I aren't, aren't as familiar. <laughs> no, and I get a lot of questions about it. It's it's filmed in Charleston. It's beautifully filmed. It's trash TV. <laughs> okay. But, <laughs> but it's it's gorgeous. It's, but it's if gorgeous. You're, if you're from this area. Uh, and you watch it you can't turn it off because mm. every scene you will recognize where mm. they are it's kind of fun it's yeah, a bunch of pretty cool. people behaving badly oh well that always yeah. sells that always yeah. sells well we've got just a few minutes left so uh we wanted to know what message would you like to share with any of our listeners who've never had a chance to visit charleston what would you like to leave us with i've always recommended to people that when you come to charleston you can be on vacation i find a lot of tourists come and they have the scripted agenda and they end up working harder and being busier than when they're back home working Mm -hmm. and that's fine i I don't like wasting days on my vacation Mm -hmm. but i think the joy of charleston and one of the joys is that it's a peninsula city it's small it's only five square miles and it's on a grid system so Mm -hmm. it's really well organized and it's clean and it's safe and it's super friendly and i tell people the number one goal is to walk just commit blocks of time to walking Mm-hmm. Go up and down and back and forth and take in as many streets as you can because every street is beautiful and different. And so you will not be bored just walking around. It's visually overwhelming. In and amongst all the old houses and buildings are museums, mm-hmm. little microsites, places where you can spend five to fifteen dollars, 20 minutes to an hour. Mm-hmm. And they're peppered around the historic district. There are about 15 little microsites in the historic district. And so I tell folks just commit blocks of time to walking, mm-hmm. but then also allow yourself to go into these ticketed sites. They're yeah. not going to be expensive. We went and to the Gibbs Museum. The Gibbs Museum. The Gibbs Museum. I mean, it's it's beautiful and that's more fine art. There are a lot of historic sites and they'll reinforce the experience. The other trick there is, you know, if it's raining or if it's hot or if it's cold or if you're thirsty or if you need a restroom, these little museums offer pit stops. Right. So you can knit together a vacation in downtown Charleston mm-hmm. without having a plan. And you don't even need a map. Look mm-hmm. at the map one time, see where you are and just walk the grid up and yeah. down and back and forth. Yeah. And you can truly be on vacation. You can just stroll around leisurely, relax and really enjoy yourself. Yeah, that's what we did. And it was it was marvelous. Every time we just go and walk, we don't really have a lot of plans. We just go and experience the city. And it's 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 a beautiful way to end the year. You just savor it. And then the other thing that you need to plan on is restaurants. Mm-hmm. We have an incredible food scene here. Bon Appetit Magazine voted Charleston the number two dining destination in the United States. Wow. We're the 200th largest city in the United States, but said to have the second best food scene. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get a bad meal here, but people come for food. And locals eat out a lot. Mm -hmm. So don't wait Mm -hmm. until you get here to make your dinner reservation. Yeah, I learned that too. (laughs) You want to make your dinner reservations a month out if you can. 
I had no mm-hmm. idea because when we, when the first time we came and did this, well, we came on our honeymoon, but we only stayed a, a day and a half. So last year we came and it was 2020. So we were able to get into any restaurant that we wanted. And we thought we're just going to do that again today. And it was like, no, they looked at us like, are you crazy? So well, we ended up eating at Henry's <laughs> because yeah. they didn't need a reservation. Right, right. Yeah. Well, it looks like we are coming to the end of our time. I know you have a tour scheduled. Thank you so much for meeting with us and talking to us and explaining Charleston, the arts. And it's one, it's one of my absolute favorite cities. Well, thank you both. I appreciate y'all having me and I appreciate what you're doing. It's it's, you're, I think you're providing a nice service. So thank you. We are also edutainment. (laughs) (laughs) I love that phrase. Yes. Thank you so much, Tommy. You are fascinating to listen to. We so appreciate your time and sharing your stories with us. And we 100% recommend uh, everybody going on his tour. And we, if you'll send me your links, I will put them in our show notes too, where people can find you. Will do. Thank you. So that was Tommy Dew. Candy, what do you think? Oh my goodness. That was amazing. (laughs) I loved it. Listening to his stories and and seeing his passion Mm -hmm. for the city and for what he does. Mm -hmm. I just love that. You know, something that I learned is we kind of started this episode thinking that the tie-in was going to be specifically the city of Charleston and tying it into the arts and the birthplace of the arts and the doc theater and all of that. That was our intent. But mm-hmm. I feel like what we what we came away with and what we learned is that what he does is entertainment. He used the he used the phrase edutainment. I agree. That hit me right off the bat when he said, "What I do is all about performance." Yeah, he's so right. That part really got me. I know. I, I think I emphasized it even in the midst of the interview. But to say again, when he talked about how he has hours and and yeah. thousands of stories he could tell, and he literally tailors every performance for his specific audience, meeting their needs, getting their reaction. That's what performers do. I mean, they, they feed off of their audience. They communicate with their audience and he's doing that, but in a much more sophisticated way because of having to edit and filter all at the same time. I love how he talks about being an editor and knowing, yeah, knowing your audience and just reading the room. And how fun to find out about his musical background and how he had a whole performance background outside of doing the tours. Yes. And he did theater and stage. I mean, Come on now. It was just marvelous. So if, if you guys are in the Charleston area, can I just say, please look up Tommy Dew. It is Tommy Dew's walking tour.com. And his email is Tommy Dew's walking tour at gmail.com. I'm going to put it in the show notes. Please take this tour. If you only have one thing to do in Charleston, take the tour. You will never, you will learn something new every single time. I've done it three times. If I go again, I'm going to do it again. I just, I love him and I love what he's doing. I love his passion for the city and I think he's keeping history alive and we need people Mm -hmm. like him. Absolutely. Next time I go back, I am taking that tour with Tommy. Good. And and speaking of Tommy, we need to cheers this amazing man, Tommy Dew. Cheers to you, Tommy Dew. Cheers. This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. All music was written, composed, performed, and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams, while our website was developed by Joshua Reith. If you like what you hear and you want to help keep the scandal water brewing, please go to our website, scandalwaterpodcast.com. Just click on your podcatcher of choice, then hit follow to subscribe. And while you're there, you might as well leave us a five-star rating and review. Don't forget, 
It's always more fun when you share your tea with others. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.